0: Well uh, tonight we're coming to the end of this little series we've been engaged in. It's been 11 weeks, can you believe that? Um, We've done a little series, if you don't usually come on a Sunday night, we've been doing a series on the names of God. I don't know about you, but in all honesty I've absolutely loved this series because it's got me back into my textbooks, it's got me back into my language studies and it, at times, it's really stretched me, and I enjoy that as a, as a preacher. Um, and uh, I, I want to thank you. Some of you have been very gracious in some of the things you've said as well. So thank you for that. And I hope, really, that through this series, you feel you've gotten to know God a little bit better and that he isn't just God to you by name. Uh, when I uh, did my back-in a fortnight ago... I can tell you I was using many of the names of God as I was crying out quite literally to him uh, in pain. Now the name we're focusing on tonight, this final name that we're looking at, uh, is the name, oh, here we go again. Is this where I've mucked up? Oh, did you have to press that? You had to. Excuse me a second. This is where you get everything wrong, because you're Mark Owen. I preached a sermon about this this morning, Mark you see? Don't worry about the warning note that's going to come up now. Here we go. So that's tonight's one. Can you see that? Yeah? Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Are you familiar with that? No, praise God. Some of you are, some of you aren't. So I want to explore this with you, and uh, we're going to do that by looking in the book of Exodus. So if you've got a Bible app on your phone or on your iPad or whatever, or if you need a a Bible book, there's one at the end of your pew. Why don't you get that open, open it to Exodus 17, and uh, we're just going to journey through a little passage in a moment together. Uh, During uh, this uh, series, uh, I've been very conscious, uh, as in any time I stand here, we are very blessed as a church to have these banners around the wall and uh, I'd like to say particularly to the ladies thank you for them I know many of uh, the older ladies here were involved in putting these together uh, I want to challenge you I want some others I'd love to have some others I really would and maybe a group of you can get together to do that I don't know but you know it just reminds us I, I do a lot of schools work as you know and we get school kids coming in and I'm able to stand here at the front with a bunch of kids and I'm able to talk about Jesus And I can talk about him as being the truth and the door. I can talk uh, about him being the, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. I can talk about him being the good shepherd. I can just point to pictures on the walls, and suddenly I'm engaging the kids, because they are not just hearing me, they are seeing something. It's why I use PowerPoint in my preaching and teaching, because I think that you know we're all different. We don't all just learn by taking stuff in from somebody stood at the front listening. We have different ways of learning, and sometimes we need to see things. Uh, sometimes I'll give you little pebbles. Remember that the other week, because some of you like to touch things, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Now, during this series, as I said, I hope we've gotten to know God a little bit better. I hope, hope we. It can go right back to the start when we looked at Jehovah uh, as Elohim. That's where we started, you may remember, the all-powerful creator God. And what I always remind you of there is the plural in the Hebrew. If a Jehovah's Witness outside Risca Library has a chat with you one day and you want to get into a conversation about the Trinity, this is where you can blow their minds. Because <sighs> you can say, I'm a Hebrew scholar. And uh, you can talk about Elohim, how God is revealed there in the early parts of Genesis as Elohim. It's a plural, very, very important. God is creating in the image of us. You know the plural is there, isn't it? And uh, it's very important that you remember that. As in cherubim, seraphim, you've got Elohim. God is plural. He is revealed ...as we know as Father, Son and Holy Spirit... ...He is the all-powerful Creator God. We've also met uh, Adonai, the Lord. That's very powerful. He is the Lord. He is more powerful than Theresa May. He is more powerful than anybody in the EU. He is more powerful than Trump. Hallelujah. He is more powerful than Putin... He's more powerful than anybody. But he's also, as we saw, Jehovah Shalom. He is our peace. And we talked about that a bit more. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the Lord, our provider. Many of us can give testimony how over the years we've struggled to make ends meet. Struggled to get by with things. And we've cried out to to Jehovah Jireh. And he has graciously provided for us. We looked at the fact he is Yahweh, God, the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. We've also seen during this series that he is El Shaddai, God the Almighty, and then Jehovah Shammah, the God who is there. That lovely sense that whether we're talking right now, tonight, uh, 7.40, uh, 6.40 rather. You thought I'd gone on a bit, but no, I haven't. 6.40 p.m., God is here. But I'm telling you, if you're worrying about Wednesday, he's already there as well. And that's Jehovah Shama. And then, uh, this is the one I was using a lot uh, over the last 10 days or so, Jehovah Rapha, God the healer. So, so wonderfully reassuring to know that God is with us. He has given us the blessing of a TENS machine and ibuprofen and all of those things, but also we trust him for our healing. And then the last time, do you remember what the last one we looked at was? Sabaoth. that's right, yeah, we did. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God of power. We are involved in a spiritual battle. Whether you acknowledge that or not, we are. And uh, there is a a war going on in the principalities and powers. And uh, we need to know that the Lord of hosts who commands the armies of heaven is with us. This is our God. We just use the name God kind of glibly, but when you understand God as all of these things, as Elohim, as Adonai, as Je- uh, Je- Jaira, as Shaddai, as Rapha, as Shabbat, as Yahweh, as Shama, wow, God is awesome. And he is to be experienced and enjoyed in ways that perhaps we've never understood before. But tonight we're going to round things off with Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our Banner. Now, as we've often done, what we've noticed is that the first instance of the use of a name of God is very, very important in understanding why God is described or revealed in this way, why this name is given to him. Now, a few weeks ago, when we studied Jehovah Rapha, we saw how in Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel had gone from well, from praising God to protesting, basically because they didn't have any water. They were like a bunch of two-year-olds. And uh, God had led them out of Egypt. He'd rescued them. He'd delivered them. And then they find themselves in the desert, and uh, they're thirsty. And eventually, do you remember, when they found some water, it was bitter. Moses had to throw a piece of wood into it, and it became drinkable. And we saw that typology, as we call it that lovely thing of how wood is used to turn something from bitterness into something that's sweet and how the cross of Jesus turns something that is bitter, our hatred against God and his hatred against sin and the cross makes it sweet and there's reconciliation. Oh, that's good. Yeah? Okay. Sylvia and I think so. That's okay. Well, they go from all of that... And then you go to Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus 16, well, they do what every good Baptist does. They start complaining again. So they've been thirsty this time. They're hungry. Their bellies, their little bellies are rumbling. And uh, God graciously rains down bread from heaven each morning and every evening. He gives them some barbecued quail so everything in in the jungle, as it were, is happy. And then we come to Exodus chapter 17. The people are on the move again, and Deb Walker's going to come, and she's going to read for us from this chapter. So Exodus chapter 17. Thanks, Deb.
1: set camp at Rephidim, and there was, wasn't a drop of water for the people to drink. The people took Moses to task, give us water to drink. But Moses said, why pester me? Why are you testing God? But the people were thirsty for water there. They complained to Moses, why did you take us from Egypt and drag us out here with our children and animals to die of thirst? Moses cried out in prayer to God, what can I do with these people? Any minute now, they'll kill me. God said to Moses, go on out ahead of the people. Take him with you some of the elders <coughs> of Israel. Take the staff you used to strike the Nile and go. I'm going to be present before you there on the rock at Horeb. You are to strike the rock. Water will gush out of it and the people will drink. Moses did what he said with the elders of Israel right there watching him. He named the place Massah. Testing place and Mariba quarreling because of the quarrelling of the Israelites and because of the testing of God when they said, Is God here with us or not? Amlek came from, came and fought Israel at Rufidim. Moses ordered Joshua, select some men for us to for us and go out and fight Amlek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on top of the hill holding God's staff. Joshua did what Moses ordered in order to fight Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. It turned out that whenever Moses raised his hands, Israel was winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek was winning. But Moses' hands had got tired. So they got a stone and set it under him. He sat on it, and Aaron and Hur held held up his hands one on each side so his hands remained steady until the sun went down Joshua defeated Amalek and its army in battle God said to Moses write this up as a reminder to Joshua to keep it before him because I will most certainly wipe the very memory of Amalek off the face of the earth Moses built an altar and named it God my banner he said Salute God's rule, God at war with Amelie, always and forever.
0: Thanks, Deb. So, they reach Referdim. Head towards Merthyr. Turn off the trunk road there, you'll get a Raffodim. Um Rephidim is uh, an interesting place, they're there, they uh, are parched again, they can't find a Coca-Cola machine within arm's length, uh, reach a, of them at all, so true to form, what do they do? Well, true to form, they start whinging, they start complaining, you know what children are like, you know, they always, you know, if they can't get what they want immediately, they start their little tantrums. And verse 2 tells us that they quarreled with Moses and uh, said to him, give us water to drink. That's what they wanted. Give us it now. For goodness sake, Moses, pull your finger out. They start accusing Moses. He's uh, surely just brought them into the desert, verse 4, to kill them. It's interesting, isn't it? Somebody once said, Christians are like cars. When they begin to knock, you know there's something wrong inside. How true. The people of God are like that. When they begin to knock, you know something's wrong inside. How often, when you and I have failed to see God's blessings in our daily lives, we have begun to complain and whinge and moan about things. We don't, often don't just take time to stand back and maybe see that in the bigger picture, God is actually working. He is bringing things about. He is just gently leading people, circumstances, or whatever, in his way. Well, the people are noisy, they're grumbling, and Moses becomes rather exasperated. So he cries out to God. He says, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And God tells Moses to take some of the elders and go ahead of the people, and he comes to a rock at Horeb where he is to strike it with his staff. Sure enough, as you know, you heard, he hits the rock, water flows out of it. And according to verse 7, this place is now to be known as Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. Well, that about sums it up. That's a good name for the place because they were busy quarreling amongst themselves and putting God to the test. They were questioning you know where is God we're thirsty where is he we're hungry where is he and they doubted they doubted God they doubted as we saw the other week Jehovah Shama, the God who is there is God here they d- d- um, doubted Jehovah Jireh the God who provides is God providing where's the water why are we so hungry but I want to pause here and uh, I want to make a point that I don't want you to miss, because this will help you really understand why we're looking tonight at this lovely, lovely name of God, uh, Jehovah Nissi. I want you to look with me very closely at this whole point of the staff that Moses is holding in his hand, because this has got very special significance. If you know anything about biblical history and particularly the book of Exodus, you might remember that back in chapter four of Exodus, God tells Moses to throw his staff on the ground. Do you remember that incident? And when he throws it on the ground, you learned this in Sunday school, surely. He throws it on the ground and the staff turns into a snake. And uh, uh, Moses is very scared about this. David, are you scared of snakes? You're not. Is your dad terrified? Yes, I'm terrified of snakes as well. And God says to Moses, throw your staff on the ground, and it turns into a snake. Moses is petrified. He's like your dad and me, David. He wants to run away. And God says to him, you pick it up by the tail. He picks the snake up by the tail, and it becomes his staff again. Now, that was a teachable moment for Moses. Verse 5 of Exodus chapter 4 says, This is so that you may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. The staff becomes a powerful reminder to Moses and to the people that the God of previous generations is with them. Now, that's very important. See, one of the things that we struggle with as good non-conformists is that as we look around this chapel, and I'll just sit here now with you, there is very little to tell you what this place is about. Because if you bring a seven-year-old into this building, as I regularly do with schools coming, what do you think they say is the prominent feature of this church, the organ. So they think that this is a music hall. They think that this is a place for concerts, if indeed they know what an organ is. Uh, Nonconformists are a little bit guilty of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Because if you go into a Church of Wales Church or a Church of England Church or a Catholic Church, you will largely be very aware about what it's about. Whether in icons, crosses, crucifixes, even stained glass windows. So we go about it our own way. We put up our banners. Praise God for banners. Because we are trying to remind ourselves what this is about. Now, I know my church history, as I'm sure you do, and I know why nonconformists stripped out all the gold and the regalia and all of that, and we did away with the altar. I understand all of that. But the problem is that sometimes we forget what it's all about. And that's so important we remind ourselves of we need to remember, and the people of God needed to remember, what it's all about. And so God had done this thing with the staff to remind them, this is me. I am with you. As that staff can become a snake and Moses can pick it up again, and it becomes a staff again, this is to remind him and the people that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared. This is an object lesson. This is a physical thing as a reminder to Moses, the powerful God is there. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I would like to have Moses' staff. Because I meet lots of people who say to me, if only I could see, I would believe. Yeah? And there are times in my life when I would quite fancy seeing something too. I've had the enormous privilege of seeing some incredible things in my life. It has blessed the socks off me when I have seen God move in miraculous ways. That has increased my faith tenfold of course it has because when you see something it does something to you so here is this physical thing later on you'll remember that moses used this staff to send plagues on the egyptians With the staff, he struck the waters to clear a path for the Israelites to cross. When they were safe on the other side, Moses stretched out his hand, holding the staff, and the waters returned, wiping out the Egyptians. This same staff is crucial as he now comes to strike this rock. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. This staff is not some magic Harry Potter wand. Now, that's the problem. That's why nonconformity moved away from all this stuff. Because the problem was that people started saying, oh, you see, if you you go and touch the altar, something wonderful will happen. If you you can get hold of the bones of St. Peter and rub your handkerchief across them, oh, you'll be healed. And suddenly it went berserk and it got carried away and we had indulgences and we had the church profiteering and it created all sorts of problems. If you read about the early Catholic church and stuff, terrible, terrible problems. And so nonconformity moved away from all of that. So don't think for one minute that this is all about the staff itself. The staff is something that represents God. This is about it representing the holy and awesome power of Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God. This was God's way of showing them that he was with them. Now, they needed to know that because they were about to do battle. And sometimes in life, we do battle. Our backs are up against the wall. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And when our backs are up against the wall, it's good to know that God's with you. It's good to remind ourselves that Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord our Provider, is there. That jehovah Shammah is there. That Yahweh is there. Now stay with me on this. God's people were complaining, remember. They were quarreling. They were rebelling. They'd had a Baptist church meeting and they were going for it. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure Moses wanted to take that blinking staff and smack the bellyachers across the head. But it's interesting. Instead, he's told to hit a rock. Now, in one sense, we could say that the people deserve to be hit by the staff of God. We all do, don't we? Because we're all sinners. We deserve the judgment that comes from God. But notice what happens. Instead of hitting them... God provides a substitute, and the rock was hit instead. You got that? Now come with me to the New Testament, come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, God was saying to Moses, take that staff And instead of striking them, strike a substitute for their sins. I don't know about you, but this is giving me spiritual goosebumps. Because do you see what this is alluding to? Way back in the book of Exodus, God is giving us a picture of the need for substitutionary atonement. We deserve to be punished. You deserve to have a hiding. You do know that, don't you? God should knock you and me black and blue. But he does that instead. In our place condemned he stood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. God should have nothing to do with me. And yet because of what Jesus did, as he stood in my place and took the punishment I deserve upon himself, that is awesome. And here in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we get a picture of this very idea. Isn't it good? And then you come to verse 8 describing the dilemma that God's people are about to face. They've been thirsty, oh yes, they've been hungry, but now they're going to get an enemy attacking them. At Rephidim, they've been refreshing themselves, but now the Amalekites attack. The Amalekites, if you know anything about biblical history, are the descendants of Esau. They were sworn enemies of God and God's people. They're dangerous things. So when Moses sees that his people are about to be pummeled, He calls out to Joshua. In other words, he gets his best SAS man on the job. He's ringing for the best guy. And he says to him, look, you need to choose some of our men, and you need to go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'm going to stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, this is important. Watch this. Joshua made a careful, well-thought-out choice to find the best men he could locate, while Moses is going to go up on the mountain with the staff of God. The staff of God, remember, represents the presence of God. Now, what's happening here is actually a paradigm shift for God's people. Up until now, you remember that God did all the fighting for the people. We read again and again in the Old Testament that God fought the people. And the people became a bit passive. And when you become passive, you become a whinger. And when things don't go exactly the way you want, you start complaining. Now they're told, get up off your backsides and do something about this yourself. They're told to be proactive and fight their own battle. Now there's a bit of a danger here, of course. They're going to have to remember that they can't do anything just in their own strength. They have to be proactive, yes, not passive, but they need to remember that God is their power. And that's so important for us as Christians today. Many people become Christians and somehow end up thinking that's it. They pass through the waters of baptism, they get their right hand of fellowship, ta da! Holy Joe, at your service. And that's it. Nothing else ever happens. Now, we have to remember, we can't just sit back and do nothing. No. We need to get up off our backsides and do something. We can't whinge and moan and groan at the world that's outside of those nice Doors that are being sanded and varnished and everything. Come into chapel on a Sunday and sing our little hymns and pray our little prayers and everything's nice and cozy and then go home and just wag our fingers at the television screens and tut at the radio. No. We've got to do something. That's why we have food banks run by the Trestle Trust, a Christian organization. That's why we have street pastors. It's why we have the Kefili Church's Night Shelter Project. It's why as a church we're involved in umpteen different things, not only in this community, but further afield. Supporting work that the Leprosy Mission are doing in Bankura, that Sh- Sharon was telling us about the other week. It's supporting work in Chad that I've been fortunate and blessed to see at my, my own experience. We have to do something. We haven't got super glue on our trousers. We have to get up. We can't just sit back and expect God to sort everything out. Instead of just being observers of God's work, these people are being asked now to be participants. It was Oliver Cromwell, wasn't it? He often pointed to the fact that God enabled him to win his battles. And he's known to have said to his troops, Trust in providence. And keep your powder dry. See, we must do what we can. Yes, we trust God, but we must do what we can. We must fight injustice. We must help the marginalized in this community. There's no point in us just having prayer meetings. There's no point in us just signing uh, petitions. We have to get up, get out, get alongside people, and do something. Picture the scene. Up to two million Israelites are trying to quench their thirst. That's a lot of people. The Amalekites attack. Those in the front of the group are wetting their whistle. Those at the back are very vulnerable. The Amalekites have quite literally gone out of their way to come after God's people. If you look on a map, Rephidim's miles away from where they live. That's so true of the enemy, isn't it? He comes when we least expect him. He comes when we're at our most vulnerable and he comes to knock us off our stride. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we read that the Amalekites attacked when God's people were at their weakest point. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all who lagged behind. So the scene is set. Joshua has got the super glue off his trousers he's up he's got a group of men with him and he's going to war he's going to fight in the valley below Aaron and his brother Ben-Hur you just thought he was some Hollywood figure here he is not really okay just in case they are up the top of the hill they're doing their thing Look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 11. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. With the staff of God in his hand, Moses visibly demonstrated that it was the power of God giving strength, giving victory. And his his hands are held in that posture of, of praise and worship, really. His hands are there, and everything is going well, and he gets tired. And so he has to try and lift them again. Remember, the staff symbolizes the God who had come through for them before. The God who was powerful. The God who was with them. It was a pledge of his presence. And here's the principle. They were to fight with all their might, but they were never to take their eyes off of God whose presence was symbolized in that raised staff. And that staff became the focal point for the people as they fought. If you know anything about military history, you'll know that opposing armies often fly a flag on a pole at their front lines to rally the troops. Many old war paintings depict different flags prominently held aloft. When the flag moved, the troops moved. When the flag fluttered in the winds, the soldiers would take courage. Flags give hope, and they bring an army together with a sense of unity. Yes, we're fighting for a cause. We're fighting for our nation. In Old Testament times, people would sometimes just use a pole uh, or a, a staff as their banner. Although, interestingly, I did, in my research, come across Numbers 2. At verse 2, the Israelites had to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. That's very interesting. The 12 tribes of Israel clearly had their own flags or bunting that they would put outside of their own tents. So every country today, you see, has its own flag. Many of us here will rally, oh, under that flag. Come on, yay. Yeah, we'll rally under that. Some will rally under that. <laughs> the flag has got no power in and of itself at all. But it symbolizes something. It signifies something. It, you identify with it. You identify with everything that's behind that flag. The power and the resources that are there. And you, you see, when believers gather under the banner of God... We're saying that we have God's power and God's resources available to us. It's very important that we know that God is Jehovah Nissi. Because he is flying his flag over us, his banner over us. And we are united under him. Because here we can be from Romania, we can be from England, we can be from Wales, we can be from Mesopotamia, we can be from Greece... We can be from Argoid. We can be from any, it doesn't matter. But we can all gather. We can be from Canada, blinking neck Even Canada. We can gather under the banner of God. That's an amazing thing. An amazing thing. After victory was won by the Israelites of the Amalekites, Exodus 17 tells us, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Moses recognised that the battle was won because they fought under the Lord's banner. As that staff was held aloft, so God's power was unleashed. Psalm 20, verse 5, We'll shout for joy when you are victorious and lift up our banners in the name of the Lord. May the Lord grant all your requests. Psalm 60 verse 4, those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Song of Songs, chapter 2 verse 4, he's taken me into the banqueting hall and his banner over me is love. Do you know Jehovah Nisi? Do you know that there is a banner flying over you? I don't care whether you're Welsh, Romanian, English, Canadian, doesn't matter We are one in Christ, and his banner flies over us. And all the power and resources of heaven are available to us. Victory isn't always quick, but you know what? You can experience it. I know that some of us in this room have struggled for years with some sins. But just like the Israelites had to battle all day against the Amalekites, so we often have to tackle trials and temptations for a long time before we see victory. I want to encourage you tonight, my friend, as God's banner is over you, don't give in. Don't give up. In the words of Romans 8, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And just as Moses interceded and prayed for those who did battle, we need to remember that we must work hard and pray hard. The old saying is, pray as if everything depended on God. And work as if everything depended on you. We can't be couch potatoes in all of this. We have to be active participants. We need friends who will battle with us. And we need friends who will pray for us. We need one another. Some of you are not physically able so much these days to do the things that you once did. God bless you for your faithfulness in the past. But you can pray. You can pray. Please pray. Please pray that those of us who are more physically active and able might rise to the challenge, might be encouraged to go on with God, to continue that which was faithfully begun and to begin new things. We need each other. For every Joshua fighting in the valley, we need a Moses up on the hillside. Will you be that Moses? Will you be that Joshua? My friends, we need God's banner over us. Moses needed the strength of others in order to pray. He needed people to help bear his arms up as he held that staff. Is there somebody that you can turn to for help? Do you need help reigniting your prayer life? Do you need somebody to come alongside you and help hold your hands up? I think it's very interesting that uh, when Moses sees victory amongst the people of God, what does he do? He writes about it. I don't know if you keep a journal. It's one of those things that I do periodically. It's fascinating to look back and to see what God has done. But the next thing he did is he builds an altar. He built it as a memorial, something to remember what God had done. So let me ask you a question in closing tonight, my friend. Whose flag are you flying under? Too many of us are flying the flag of me. Who few of us are flying the flag of Jehovah Nissi. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your Amalek is, but I do know this. We can pray for you, we can support you in your fight in the valley. And for some of us, we need to join you in that valley and fight with you. I want to close by reading something called The Christian's Horizon. I came across it a couple of weeks ago. And it really blessed me. It says, what do I see as I look back? Millions of mercies along life's track. God's love shining where all was black. That's what I see looking back. What do I see as I look within? A heart by my savior redeemed from sin. A hope through his grace, heaven's joy to win. That's what I see looking to him. What do I see looking forth today? blessings granted before I pray a sheltering arm a guiding ray that's what I see looking at today what do I see as I look on burdens lifted and trials gone a light at every surpassing dawn that's what I see looking on what do I see as I look above God's own banner whose name is love love unspeakable wonderful love That's what I see when I look above. My friends, I hope that you have met with God, who is Jehovah Nissi, a God who has revealed himself as Elohim, as Adonai, as Shalom and Jireh, as Yahweh, as El Shaddai and Shama, as Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah Saboth. He is our God.